Hello. Happy almost Thanksgiving, everyone. Um, it's good to see a couple of you. A lot of, a lot of our church uh, makes the migration back to Ontario at this time of year, so it's good to have some of you. And um, today we can have a little bit of a family time um, after. Uh, we're going to do something we, we've done once before, but we're going to do it again. We don't do it often. It's just sort of break up into discussion groups after the sermon. So you can look forward to that or, uh, you know, cringe when it comes because you're like, oh, I don't want to talk to people. Either way, we're going to do it. Um, so to get us started to warm up, because when I said good morning, no one replied. I think there was one person. Thank you. All right. Sorry, Nate. Sorry. Thank you, Nate. Um, who here likes watching medical TV shows? Um, when I grew up, I liked watching MASH. I've seen like every episode three times, so a lot of my like humor comes from Alan Alda. Um, does anyone like Grey's Anatomy? Grey's Anatomy, a little, okay, so a little bit, there we go, there we go. Um, right now, my wife and I are working through House. Uh, we're, we're loving that show. But um, these shows, and then, sorry, I'll, I'll do um, older people, uh, ER, George Clooney, anyone? All right, no, no, we're, we're a little young for that. Um, so in these shows, there's always some kind of patient that comes in with symptoms. And um, the doctor's job is to come up with a diagnosis based on these symptoms. And it's like once we get a diagnosis, we're like, okay, now we can cure the patient. Like, this is a good thing. Um, so imagine... Uh, someone gets rushed into uh, the room and they're like, doctor, I got, I got chest pain. I feel weak. And then you as the doctor, you check the blood pressure. They have high blood pressure. You notice that they're, they're racked with cold sweat. What do you think the diagnosis could be? You can shout it out if you think of one. I hear murmurings. A heart attack! So you, you diagnose and say, this is a heart attack. And from there, we can work to stabilize the patient, um, get them on the right medication. And then we can figure out, like, well, what caused this? And he says, well, I really love double bacon cheeseburgers. And you're like, well, let's cut down on that um, to minimize the heart attacks. So what does this have to do with Paul? What does this have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, we're looking at uh, a letter that Paul wrote. He was an early church leader. And he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Now, this letter is what I would call an occasional letter. That means um, there is an occasion for why he is writing it. Something has happened that initiates Paul to write this letter. Um, he's not just saying airy-fairy religious words. Sometimes we read that and we, we just get overwhelmed by you know, Christ, God, Father, Spirit, and we read it and go, oh, this must just be like really religious words. Like, no, he's addressing something here to a people. So we have to look at the context to find out what that means. And the occasion of this letter, the reason for the season, is that there are church problems. There's been a triggering event, and we have a list of symptoms. And so today, we'll look at Paul's diagnosis of the church and see what he prescribes. And by the way, all the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are in response to something going on in the church. And most of the time, it has to do with church problems. So what's going on here? The, the Corinthian church is 
unpolished, and that's our, our series that we're working through in Corinthians. There were divisions in the church that had come from some kind of ungodly devotion to leaders or ideas. The individuals mentioned are uh, specific church leaders and teachers. So some you may have heard about, like Paul, Jesus, and uh, Cephas, it might be in your Bible, but it's, it's Peter, Cephas, Peter, same person. Um, and uh, there's another one named Apollos, who you might recognize from uh, Acts chapter 18. So we have these, these church leaders mentioned, um, and um, what Paul's going to say is that these are merely servants. They're servants of the gospel. They are no savior. Christ is the one who was crucified. It's Christ's body that we enter into only by the name of Christ. By his power, we enter into fellowship with him. So we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. But Paul will, will carry this thread all the way through chapter 3, to the end of chapter 3. And um, if you are reading along with us, and I encourage you to just be reading 1 Corinthians as we march through the book together, or the, the letter, um, you might get, you know, you're like, is Paul, does Paul have ADD? He like jumps around in all these topics. There's just a lot going on and he's addressing it, but we're trying to clear that up to help you read it. Um, so again, we're just looking at verses 10 to 17, but uh, it will go all the way to the end of chapter 3, which says this in verse 21 to 23. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are in Christ, and Christ is of God. Paul is trying to impart on them a perspective, a perspective that will change them, fundamentally change them through Christ's power. So Paul is weaving together this argument, showing them how they have what's called worldly thinking. Worldly thinking or fleshly thinking, literally, is what he's calling it. He says that in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly or, or literally fleshly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly or fleshly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human beings? So Paul is addressing how they've, yes, they've been saved by Christ. There's not an issue of that here. But they're not being what they should be. They should be more transformed than this. They should be more changed by the gospel and its power. So he's going to be preaching against this worldly conduct, but he's also going to be preaching against worldly wisdom at the same time. But again, we'll get that, uh, to that in, uh, I think, about two or three sermons from now. So we're going to set aside the worldly wisdom topic for another day. 
So what we want to get to is Paul's first diagnosis for this unhealthy church, and that is political divisions breaking the fellowship of the church community. So let's return to our doctor's analogy or illustration to look at what's going on together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12 says this, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this. Each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Christ. Paul has received word from Chloe's people. Now, um, Chloe is just... A, a person. We don't know much more than that, and this means literally like those of Chloe. And uh, quarreling is the symptom, uh, which uh, one scholar, just to bring it to life a little bit more, because if I said, um, I hear there's been quarreling among you, you'd go like, what? <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, what this means is like heated fighting, fighting to the point where our our rivalries just can bear it no more. Uh, It ends in shouting matches. Um, Thanksgiving, anyone? Is this your family? Um, You're like, it starts out with a meal, but we don't make it to dessert because the fighting gets so heated. That's kind of what's going on here. It's unbearable. Now, again, um, Paul's just responding to the people that come to him that are of Chloe. So, We don't know, again, much more other than they're just acquainted with Chloe's household or her business. That'd be like, of Hershey, people of Hershey. You're like, oh, they work in the chocolate factory under Hershey, Mr. Hershey. Um, So of the many things, the top of the list is this division, the quarreling that comes from factions and rivalries. So uh, there are these groups. And each group has this slogan. We, we see the slogan, um, you know, I follow Paul. Now, there are slogans that we know and recognize every day. You know, it's like, I'm loving it. That's McDonald's slogan. But you'd be like, I'm someone, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that's, I'm a loving it person. And you're like, okay, so you eat McDonald's for breakfast. Um, but here, these are like, uh, I, I am of, of, this, of this group. And, and the titles are Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. But we don't see church splits yet. These, these aren't like um, churches that have gone off and one, one says, we're going this complete uh, different theological direction. These guys are heresy. They're, they're not even part of the church. They're still under one roof, but there are splits within that group. We don't know much more about how they were organized, so I'll tell you what I know of the context, and then we'll work from there with these divisions. So on the face of things, is it that these people were aligned to certain ideas uh, that these people stood for? Um, If that would be the case, maybe Paul would be your, like, uh, Christ for everyone group, um, because he preached to the Greeks and the Romans. Now, this was kind of an early letter, and, and Paul was very much focused on, on Jewish congregations at the time. Um, and then Peter would be the banner guy for, like, the Jews. Like, uh, everyone should become like a Jew. Is that what's going on? Apollos would be known as the articulate speaker, the one of eloquence. Um, so he might be someone who stands for appreciating good rhetoric, 
um, that might appeal to the richer crowd, those who are more sophisticated. Now, we can definitely find these sort of theological uh, uh, separations. Paul addresses many groups. Uh, you can think of the Galatians as well. And he addresses those theological concerns, but we don't see that quite here. But um, if that is true, I, I can find this in the church all the time. This is a very common one. Um, and it might just be if we're under the same roof, uh, just I appreciate this I appreciate this person's preaching more than the other guys. So it might be like, I come to church when he preaches, but I don't come to church when this other guy preaches. Or uh, maybe a more subtle version of this is after Sunday service, you ask uh, the person next to you, so what did you think of the sermon? And uh, the, the main goal of this question is not, you know, how are you being transformed by Christ and how do you feel convicted? It's more like, um, I didn't like the sermon or the preacher, or I'd like to uh, engage in a conversation about what I find disappointing about the church. That happens all the time. I, I grew up in the church. I, I know these after Sunday conversations. Now, that there's one last group that is mentioned, which is the I follow Christ group. Now, commentators, those are the, you know, the scholars that think too long on these um, texts, are not quite sure about what the gossip, uh, or, or sorry, what this group means. It might possibly be that they reject all human leaders. They're like, we don't even follow human leaders. We are the non-leaders group, even though we have a leader and we're called a group, the group that follows Christ. Um, now, this is one interpretation of what these groups might mean. They stand for certain things. But one reason I don't think that they're aligned uh, ideologically or theologically along these lines is that we see that one group is for Paul and one group is for Christ. Now, it wouldn't make sense if Paul goes to such length to explain himself why he just constrained his message to being only about Christ if he also had a separate group for him. And then you also had a group for Christ. Uh, and then if you look at all these church leaders, they're actually all preaching for Christ. So there's something going on under these, uh, these, these labels. Uh, one might be that there's just celebrity worship going on, that um, there are certain people that get raised up as celebrities. This would account for why Paul maybe mentions, like, I'm just so thankful I didn't baptize many of you because you guys are misunderstanding. When someone baptizes you, there was nothing special about the person that did it. Um, even if you look at the Gospels, Jesus didn't baptize as many as his own disciples did. So the person who did it to you has no power. Later, Paul will point out that it's, it's the name that matters, not just the mere word, but in the power of whom did you get baptized, which is Jesus. The other option is that these groups were factions that used these names for the sake of their own political faction. So the Greco-Roman world was organized by factions. This is how the world worked. Um, so there were these patrons of a faction, and the patrons were like the big fish, okay? 
they would host the faction maybe at their home or their, their big compound. They would supply the needs for the group. They were the ones that had political offices in town. Um, they would work the agenda for their faction, and the faction would work for them too. So to be a part of a powerful faction was like a thing to be enjoyed. They would be loyal to you, and you were loyal to them. You'd get things done that suited you. So in the faction, let's call this faction, you know, Team Purple. You'd have your patrons. They'd pay for things, kind of like a booster in college if you like college sports. They're like, let me write a check to your, your school. Oh, and by the way, I really like this done here. So they'd be pushing for these kind of things. Then you'd have what's known as a client. Clients were indebted to the generosity of your patrons at some point in another. Maybe you enjoyed the protection and provision of a patron. Maybe that's how you got a job. You worked for Mr. Hershey because he got you a job there. So when Mr. Hershey wants you to do something, you're like, well, I kind of have to do it. So you would owe your loyalty to that patron and their faction. Well, let's look at it another way. Team Edward and Team Jacob. So let's look at these two teams. You know, for some people, their reasons for following Team Edward would be, Team Edward has a cold personality, but he warms up to Bella. Everything he does, he does for her. With his intense personality comes an intense love for her. That's why I'm on Team Edward. Bella craves this type of fairy tale, which just Jacob honestly can't provide for her. Now, maybe you're on the other side. You're like, compared to Team Edward, Jacob seems like a more reasonable guy for Bella, especially during the new moon when he really gets to shine. Jacob proves to be a much warmer, thoughtful individual than Edward. He encourages Bella to pursue her goals, no matter how dangerous, such as she wants to ride a motorcycle. He's attentive, and they have a lot more in common. So I'm sure we fall on, on, on different sides of the, uh, the issue here, and that was uh, brought to you by CBR.com. But, um, and you can take that slide down because it will distract us the rest of the sermon. <laughs> but uh, the result would be, um, it's not the reasons why you chose Jacob or Edward from the beginning, rather, Whoever ran Team Jacob was, and they had their agenda, would be why you followed them and how that suited your needs. You'd owe that person some personal loyalty. It was no longer that you were merely a fan of a sparkly vampire. It was more like, you're Team Edward? I'm Team Edward. Let's do business. Or another way to think about it is the popular girl at school. She's kind of like the big fish going through the high school. And she somehow invited you to lunch. Now, other people think you're popular. And she actually helped facilitate you get that boyfriend, finally. So whatever she says, kind of, that's what you're going to follow. Church being a little bit like high school? Oh, my. Um, so what would this mean for church life? Imagine a diverse group. You can think about Montreal if you'd like. 
who encountered Jesus and wanted to follow him. Some were rich, some were poor, some were Jews, some were Greeks, others were Romans. Some were free, some were slaves. And all of them lived in this town called Corinth, where politics were a little bit like I described so far. Imagine some of the rich people were powerful and had money and employed some of the people that were poorer. And this was all part of the church community. Then put all these people together, and what do you get? A really messy family. That was the church. This is the beginnings of their church. Now, there are people who are going to push their personal agenda onto the church. They know how the world works, and they're going to move forward in that way. I see how it works in Montreal. Let me do that here as well, pushing their agenda through their politics. But this is worldly thinking. This is worldly living for Paul. So, yes, Jesus has been real to them, They've bent their knee to him, but they have a long way to go in growing in maturity. They have room to mature a little bit more. Um, and that's why Paul, again, says, like, I wanted to address you as spiritual people, but you are, pe are people of the flesh, infants in Christ. And the fact is, you shouldn't be here. Now, there are there are places in the Bible that talk about um, um, like having grace for you in, in where uh, you are growing more and more. But if you're headed in a direction that is just so infantile, you never need to go in that direction. Paul always redirects you and says, I shouldn't even expect you to be headed this way. Why are you doing that? Yet, I know many of you have experiences of the church, or uh, when you say that you're a Christian, people say all sorts of things about what they think the church is like. And I think it has a lot to do with these sort of Christians, the fleshly, worldly Christians, the babies. They're ruining the name of Christ. So why is this? We have our symptoms, the diagnosis, well, it's people and political outcomes have grown too big. The cross is not big enough, and they didn't understand what the church was, that it was Christ's body, and they were a part of it. So what about our little church? What are ways that we need to watch out as a group so that we can be one? We can be a healthy church not imposing our culture or personal agendas on the church in this way. If we reduce what's going on, it's people pushing their personal wants onto the church, trying to make it, um, trying to take it over so they can get what they want, rather than mutually serving each other. Now, there are certain ways this can happen, and I'll try to get a little specific, specific for you which always causes problems, but problems are good if we can work those out. The first is let's not confuse political leaders and their agendas for Christ's agenda. Now, I don't get the sense um, when I talk to you one-on-one -on -one that our church has um, as much of a problem with confusing the agenda of Christ, his life-changing power, the gospel, the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, 
and owning ourselves to being the Lord's uh, children with North American political leaders. But that is a hot issue that we just can't ignore. That's part of the story that we're embedded into. But let's stay away from that as a church. Um, one way you can think about it is going back to worldly versus spiritual thinking. Political means produce political outcomes. Spiritual means produce spiritual outcomes. It's kind of like apples versus oranges, which I've never liked that, that saying because both are fruit, okay? But it, it's like more different than that. It's like apples versus like just not fruit at all. <laughs> that should be the saying. The flesh versus the spirit. So if we, as a church, find our hope and power and direction through political means only, what will it always produce? Political outcomes. So what should we be pushing instead? You can think about that. Now, the second way, I think this is much more common in our community, the early church was not purely democratic. And what I mean by that is purely democratic to the point where there were no leaders whatsoever. Everyone just raised their hand and voted on every single thing. Okay, should we believe this or that? Everyone raised their hand. Um, but there was leadership. There was also the scriptures. These two had authority. Now, leaders just didn't make up whatever they wanted to. That would go back to pushing your political end. No, they would examine the scriptures together. And the first, uh, the early church leaders all had personal contact with Jesus Christ himself. They would deliberate, they would pray, and come to some kind of consensus. And then the church would move forward with that consensus. Now, uh, what's hard about this for us to accept is you might be in the minority. And it doesn't mean to invalidate your opinion. It just means we're moving in this direction, not your direction. Or this is how we're going to um, see things, not the way you see things. And what we see in the church, as it remains one, is those minority opinions stay with us. They stick it out. We come under one name. We come under one leadership and move forward from there. Why? Well, because these are smaller issues. They're smaller issues compared to the cross, Christ's blood, what he did for us, and who we are today. Coming back to that larger perspective that we should have. So when minor opinions would um, come under this direction, it proves something powerful. There's something bigger at play. And people can see that from the outside. And what we need to know about this is the church is just not going to be a perfect reflection of you. Um, oftentimes we, we impose that on, on life. Um, marketing really loves this because they keep trying to make sure we, we get what we want and they try to tell us what we want. It's their thing. But when we put that onto church, we're always going to be disappointed. The church will never be a perfect reflection of you personally, which should be a good thing because a community is many people together. 
that is diversity. We all need that. We all say we want it, yet we get disappointed when it's not lining up with what we want perfectly. Um, one, one example of this that I think our church did well was uh, during COVID. Um, we had leadership, we had congregational members that were on um, opposite sides of what sh we should do as things were changing, as the government was um, uh, um, unveiling new decisions and how that impacted church and how it should gather. We were all affected by it. Some churches split. They, were, they divided over this, and now they are no longer the same church. Uh, but we got to gather back together, and we're still one congregation, which is awesome. But that wasn't easy. And the way that happened was entrusting our leadership, and then the leadership deliberated, they prayed, and we moved forward together that we could stay as one. A third way this happens, and I've seen it happen in other churches, I've seen it happen here a little bit, but I'll, I'll be vague about that because uh, it was a while ago. Um, there is the main church, and then someone builds up a side following, drawing people from the main congregation. They do this through uh, perhaps being charming or charismatic, and they, they promote themselves as having sort of a special connection to God, seeing things uh, more clearly than the rest of us are. And they start teaching their own way and promote something that they are discontented by not seeing in the church. Rather than making their plea known um, to leadership and to the congregation and working together to seeing how we can um, improve the church, they go off on their own. It's basically, I don't like the way the church does it, so I'm going to go and do it this way. It, sorts to, it starts out as being sort of a side thing, but ends up in rebellion and kind of just self-glorifying, uh, a self-glorifying movement, because it becomes about you. You had an agenda that just couldn't quite come under the church. Now, there are positive examples of this within our church. There was a woman who... Um, when she became part of this church and was just really on fire for God, she, she started going to a mosque and having interfaith dialogue with women, but she would just do it on her own. Eventually, we, uh, we as the church, I wasn't a part of the church, said, hey, you're doing something really awesome. Can we help you with this? We feel like as a church, this is an awesome thing to be doing. And so uh, we were able to supply uh, we, you know, if you're, if you're on your own, who's, who's watching over you? How do you have accountability for what you're sharing or what you're saying? And the issues are complex. So we supplied with teaching, we supplied with resources, volunteers, and we started to have um, an interfaith dialogue where they would come to us. We would go to them. And we could model the church, not just a set of ideas that one person could communicate very well, but they got to see the church women come together. Another uh, concrete example is uh, the Spanish city group that we have here. Um, there were just people that are working on their English, working on their French, just landed here from wherever, and they needed a place to pray. They needed a place to be, and they started meeting on their own. They started going on bike rides. And I was like, this kind of sounds like a city group. 
And so I came to them and it's like, hey, would you guys like to be a Spanish-speaking city group? And they're like, yes. So they, uh, we, we picked out leaders. We, we found a place to meet. And now they're doing great. They're part of the church. And that's a wonderful movement of the church that we can do together. That's unity. So our church wants to continue to plant churches. We want to see the church grow. But we do it together. And we see that all through Acts chapter 6, chapter 11, we do it together. Now, I'm going to take a sidestep because I think a lot of you in your back of your minds are like, what about all these church denominations? Now, it's sad to say that the church is more often known for its divisions than its unity. And this is a bigger topic for another day, but what was happening at Corinth with these sinful humans is something that can happen on a small scale. But it's no surprise that that can happen on a larger scale, if that answers some of your questions. In this way, the same rules apply. But you and I are born in, well, we're not born in 2023, but here we are in 2023. It's been a while. We come with some history. You know, like relationships with history, <laughs> there's, there's some baggage. There's things to work through. This is what we inherit for today. You and I were not born when these church splits happened. Here we are. So a quick rubric for what to do when you're looking for a church in denominations that are different from you some of those easy things to look for are, do they preach the scriptures? Does the spirit of God dwell here? Do they celebrate communion? So I just encourage you to pray for unity within the church. Let's pray for revival and sound biblical teaching and repentance for churches that are straying away. Let's pray for humility among believers and find out what Christ has done for them. And let's move in that direction. But one way I want us to look at the church is, is it division or is it diversity? And again, this is a larger topic that we don't talk about often. But I've seen, um, I've, I've lived in different places all around the world. I'm from Denver, Colorado. I lived in the Philippines for a while. I've lived in South America, for so, or uh, Central America for some time. I've, I now live in Canada with you all. Uh, and um, I've met Christians all over. And it, what's been so easy to find is when I meet a believer, there's one testimony I hear all the time, and maybe you have this same testimony. You can raise your hand if you've experienced this. But when you meet other Christians, you feel like brothers and sisters so quickly. The Holy Spirit is there, and you feel one with them. You say, oh, I, I, can, I can feel the Holy Spirit in you, and I see how you're obeying Jesus. I'm doing the same. Let's keep going in that direction. Now, if Christ is the head and we're one body, then we're all part of this same organism. We're all part of the same body. Though our churches might be in different languages, in different locations, with different histories, we can still be a part of the same body. So maybe in that way, we can see it as diversity, not division. 
Now, you will find churches that believe different things. These would be um, soft issues versus hard issues. And I'm just going to read something that I read in the Engage class that all of you have been to, except a few of you. Um, and I say this, Church 21 stands in the tradition of historic Christian faith, a faith well stated in, in the Apostles' Creed. On matters of doctrine, we embrace the maxim, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, diversity, in all things, charity. In other words, we believe that doctrine, so that's just the teachings that we teach and believe is important, but that we, that common adherence to all points of doctrine is not necessary for salvation. So what that means is you don't have to perfectly believe everything from hard issues to soft issues to be saved. And um, we want to reflect that unity. The reality is there are soft and secondary issues that you and my, I might fall a little bit differently on. And the thing is, there are theological issues as you begin to read your Bible that you kind of have to fall on one side or the other. You can't, you can't be on one side. And it's actually good for a church to choose a side and be clear about it, where they fall. But in one way, we maintain unity throughout the global church by opening the word, worshiping God here, today, and now, and celebrating that communal meal that the Lord died for us. He made a way for us, and we look forward to that day we can be with him again. So we might fall on different soft issues, but we still worship together in spirit. So when is it division instead of diversity? Continuing with the health analogy, your body is made up of different cells, okay? You have like kidney cells, you have lung cells, and those cells help out the lung or the kidney, but the kidney cell doesn't help out the heart. It doesn't make a little mini heart. No, it stays a kidney, and that's what it's doing. But there are, um, um, as they do their different things, they're coming under one body, right? To function together. Division, then, would be something like maybe cancer. A cancer cell starts out as a normal cell, but then decides to oppose the body and start copying itself. It makes little copies. Little Peter, 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 Peter. Yay, everyone's like me, let's party. No, it, so it copies itself until it makes itself into a tumor, which is a direct opposition to the body. So when a church or a small group makes itself about any issue that isn't Christ, this can lead to becoming in opposition of Christ himself. And that's how a group, a church or a small group, can start out as the church, but end up one day as a nationalist group. You're like, this is more about uh, uh, um, these nationalistic ideologies than it is about Christ. Or it can end up being like, this group says Buddha and Jesus are the same. Well, that's just not true. Or that's not what I believe. I believe Jesus is the one Lord. Now, these groups are no longer the church. But those happen throughout history, and we see it time and time again. 
Now, for me, um, uh, a nuanced uh, approach to just what it could look like to have differing opinions from the major church. Um, again, I, I went to many different churches, and there was a time when I went to a church that I disagreed with many of their soft issues. I could see how this was the body of Christ. They truly loved people. They went out to the community and shared the gospel. But as I, as I started to move towards becoming a pastor, one day I realized, oh no, it, if I get up on stage and preach sermons here, I'm going to say something directly in opposition of what they teach here. I'm going to start creating a division here. So, what did I do? I saw that these people had the essentials. This was the church. They were my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I was truly blessed by them and their diversity. I was, uh, I was, I was different than them. But I've come to learn and appreciate many things that they did there. So I grew as a person in my faith. But I left quietly. I was in leadership there as well. And I, I, I stepped back and just supported the church as I stepped back and as I left. And that church is still there today. And it's a beautiful church. So let's create unity, not division. Now, how do we maintain unity in the church and not become cancer cells? Paul give us, gives us a treatment plan. And we can find that in chapter 1, verse 13, and I, I encourage you to look at it with me. Um, he says this, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Those are our three points in how to treat um, division and become unified. So looking at the first one, is Christ divided? What this church in their worldly thinking had misunderstood is what exactly is the church? What it is, is Christ's body. So you could say, who is it? Because it's also a person. But what is it? What does it consist of? One. There's one body. That is Christ's body, and we are a part of it. Instead of um, many little factions that are going off and doing their own thing. So they had categorically misunderstood what exactly the church is. Have you forgotten that? The next was, was Paul crucified for you? Again, these, you can answer all these questions with the word no. <laughs> uh, he's being very obvious here. Paul was not crucified for you. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. So um, any kind of leader that is creating division or any kind of group that's following the leader more than Jesus has misunderstood who their Savior is. You know, I'm Peter before you today. I'm just another sinful sinner. I'm just, here I am. Um, I didn't do anything for you. But what makes me stand up here today is that I'm trying to serve the gospel. I'm trying to serve you. And that's, that's going into uh, chapter 3, 
um, where he says, what is Paul? Verse 5, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. So you're misunderstanding the power of the gospel. The, the power of the gospel is not through the person. It's through the message and the message embodied in Christ. And then the last is, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is no. Whoever baptized you didn't matter. And maybe they were imposing their, their factions onto baptism and going, okay, if I was baptized in them, like, I support them and make sure I hurt the other groups. But when, whenever it says in the name of Jesus, it's talking about the power of Jesus, not just it's not just some formula that you use. It's Jesus Christ has power because he is the power. He is the one who holds the keys. He has the authority. So what does this all mean? It means when we look at the cross, when we look at who was crucified for us, he is the one who has the power to save. And it was by his name that he said, I free you from sin and death and the direction you're heading and transform, transform you and move you, transfer you into my kingdom of light. You are now inserted into my body. You are part of me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is powerful. Now, a lot of us um, are, are going through the primer in our city groups, and we recently talked about community. It says this in the primer. The hope of the gospel is that we don't have a perfect community since Jesus was perfect for us. When we let one another down, we point to Jesus who lifts us up. The gospel, not religious rules, unites the church. Religious community, however, says if we keep community rules, then, we will, uh, then people will accept me. But the gospel is different. A gospel community says we are already accepted in Christ. Therefore, we love, forgive, and accept one another. This is good news. The gospel frees us from performing for God, for the church. You don't have to impress God because Jesus impressed God for you. You don't have to pretend to be perfect because all of us are imperfect people clinging to a perfect Christ, being perfected in the Spirit. So let's follow him. Let's imitate him. Let's gain that perspective that Christ has and Christ is. And that's the only reason why we're here on a, Saturday, uh, on a Sunday morning. One of the most powerful things um, that we can, uh, or, or, or one of the most powerful images of this, I find, is when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. In John chapter 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart after, um, out of this world to the Father, and reminding you that was through the cross, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, 
and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments like a slave, that's me adding to it, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. My friends, let's be united in serving one another. You and I have different functions. We have different interests. We have different histories. I'm well aware that many of you came from different churches before you landed here. Let's unite under Christ. Let's have him move us into service for one another. In the power of his name, let us do it. Let's lay down what doesn't matter and pick up what does matter. And it's through him that we can have this unity. We can have fellowship. As Paul, the verse right before what we preached today, says, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's have fellowship with Jesus and be united under him in one body. Let's pray. In the name of Jesus, would you bind us together? Would you give us a larger perspective? Jesus, we confess that we often make things smaller than you'd like it to be. We become petty. We use how the world works on the church. And we don't want to do that anymore. We lay that down here and now. Jesus, would you send your spirit to fill us up in a new way? Would you empower us to be community to one another? Lord, for those of us who spend most of our week in isolation, would we learn how to be part of the community? Serving others, not just sucking off companionship and living life on my own terms, but coming into the light from Monday to Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Lord, would you teach me a new way to live? Lord, we lay down um, all, the, all the small ways, the political ways, the, the, the petty ways that we try to force our agenda onto others and the church. And we just wanna follow you. Would you give our church vision and direction? And when people come into this room, they'd see us one. With diversity, yes, but there's something here that makes us one, that binds us together. All these strangers with different stories and pasts, they would see us loving and serving one another. May it be so by your power through your death and resurrection. Amen.